0: Welcome back to the Security Conversations Podcast. My guest this week is Brandon Dixon. Brandon is now VP of Products over at Risk IQ after selling Passive Total to Risk IQ. And Brandon is one of those really, really interesting, almost mysterious guys. Uh, I met you several years ago at CanSec West and you were, you know, giving me some uh, LIP for some of my work I was doing at uh, ZDNet. Uh, you were at iDefense at the time doing what? Can you talk to me about your trajectory through this industry? Uh, how, what was your introduction to security?
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. So for me, my I've been in security my entire career. I was fortunate enough to get exposed to it uh, back in high school. Um, and I went through a, a Cisco networking academy uh, trade school where we learned about uh, different networking, uh, routing protocols, setting up Cisco gear. Um, and in part of that process, uh, we would have community colleges or, or other special guests come in and they would educate us around like, how we could use these skills to further our career going forward. And one of the, the people that came in was actually a guy named Casey O'Brien, who I'm still friends with today, uh, who was over at the Community College for Baltimore County. And he was the first one that exposed security to us. And, and once we got a hold of, of that concept, um, we really latched on to hacking. And, and that, was the, that was our conquest, was to figure out how to hack into, to, into networks. Uh, and so very quickly, I mean, we, we grad, I graduated high school uh, early, um, had a bunch of credits uh, from community college because we took night classes uh, and the Cisco program itself. Um, And at that point I had a buddy who was working with the NSA contractors uh, and he essentially found a way to get me into one of the contractors when I was uh, 19 and I decided to pursue going down that path, but also doing college at the same time. Uh, And it was during that that time when we were at the defense contractor where you know, I learned uh, a bunch of different things about simulating the internet, um, and at the time, I didn't realize exactly what I was supporting, and that's the nature of that work. Uh, but from there, we essentially—I uh, I jumped over. You realize the- you're skipping
0: over like all the fun stuff.
1: Well, I, where do you so? How do how do you want me to do it? Because I like I don't want to like spend too much time with me just talking about trajectory.
0: No, I I'm. I'm yeah. It's it's interesting because you've been on all sides of, of of security. Is there was there one uh, that 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 stuck out over the years? Uh, doing whether it's doing defense, whether it's you know in, in academia, and is it safe to assume you did some offensive counter up stuff? Um, talk a little bit about that life.
1: So, uh I mean, like I, I've I've been fortunate to kind of end up in all these different areas, to me, what was most interesting was the fact that each stage in my career has built on, on top of, of each other. And so working at the defense contractors where they're not, you, you're basically working in compartments in a way, like what it is that you're supporting is, you know, referred to as the mission. Um, and that, that concept is much bigger than you. It's a, it's a larger uh, collective that's going on. And and by virtue of keeping certain things private or secure, like you're only exposed to to certain elements. And so, what's particularly interesting about you know my career is that I started in that area so early, and it was only until I started getting into the espionage research, I think in 2011, when I was working at George Washington University, and then flipping over to iDefense and Verisign, that I, I truly understood the nature of the work that I had previously did all those years ago. That the things that we were doing, how cutting edge they were, um, and all of the, the networking information that I learned and all of the, the programming that I had started to learn was coming back to benefit me in, in the private sector, in, a, in an area where I could actually talk about everything that I was doing and, um, and, and really highlight that sort of stuff, like give it to commercial companies, um, give them these capabilities.
0: And you, you know I mean? On. sorry, so, go ahead.
1: No, I, I want to address the offensive aspect as well. Um I personally I, I did some offensive penetration testing work when I was at one of the defense contractors, but it was not in the in the sense of like any sort of espionage. Um, so the the most of the I don't know if it would qualify as offensive, but you know, when we did do our traveling at, at Verisign and defense, we went to different countries with the purpose of understanding the culture and potentially meeting with people who who were saying that they were doing nefarious activities or that they had data that they could share with us about attacks that were going on that might benefit uh, protecting our customers. And it was during those trips that, you know, I began creating virtual machines on my laptops, sitting on the hotel network and emulating the targets that these espionage, uh, that these government states wanted to go and attack. And so at that point I was now interacting with these government actors in country on keyboard, alongside of them at their working hours. Uh, so I don't know if that qualifies as offense. Um, it's more of a nuisance I think uh, to them. But there's a lot of information that we gained out of those uh, that work,
0: and really drove your interest in this threat intel space. Um, talk, help help the listeners understand what passive total is. What went into your thinking to build it? How did you build it? Did you bootstrap it on your own while you were working somewhere else?
1: Yeah, uh, I totally bootstrapped um, with my, my co-founder, Steve Ginty. Um, him and I were essentially working at iDefense together. We were doing a number of different investigations on, on behalf of uh, customers or, or just being proactive, um, using the data that we had at our disposal to go find actors that messed up, um, or in the case of traveling around the world, manufacturing our own data to help us you know, essentially burn these guys. And, um, you know, there, the, there was getting to a point with iDefense defense that I felt like I had done a, a lot there and I wanted to move on. Uh, and so I did. Um, and one of the things that, you know, I did after leaving iDefense was I took some time off. Uh, I had a lot of ideas. I had built products previously, um, PDF x-ray being one of the more notable ones when I was at George Washington University. And I wanted to build a product again and I wanted to really invest in in all this information that I learned while I was at iDefense and and learning about these actors, so um, I built the the platform over like a month and a half. I went to go work another job, kind of piddled around on it for a little bit, and then uh, worked on it again after I left that job. Eventually, went over to Facebook and I was talking with Steve, and I'm like, Steve, we should we should just start a company because initially, Passive Total started out as a free service, and for anyone who's not familiar with it, it's essentially an analyst tool that combines all of these different data sources, um, initially just starting out with passive DNS. And it makes it so that you can put information in the system, you know, what you're researching, whether or not something's malicious or suspicious, uh, tagging infrastructure, and it makes it very quick uh, for you to pivot around and, and discover threat actor infrastructure.
0: Oh, that, that's what people are using it for?
1: Yeah, um, essentially that was the initial starting point was uh, there was all this data that was getting generated from all these different security companies, and and when I'm doing an investigation, I'm having to go out to each one of those individual sources, which has a slightly different data format, may have an API, may not have an API. I may not even know that some of these exist because of the frequency in which they were coming online. And so PassiveTotal uh, was a meant, it was essentially meant to collect all of the data into one spot and make it easy for the analyst so that they didn't miss anything, that they didn't have to spend the time collecting the content, then they could instead spend the time doing the investigation.
0: What do you make of where the threat intel space now, uh, where, the, where, the, where the space is now in terms of what's available from vendors and what is needed by defenders in these big organizations? I feel like there's a disconnect between what is being sold and what, uh, what the need is. Is that fair assessment?
1: Yeah, I think that is fair. Um, you know, watching security develop from from my start in it at you know even at, at sixteen in high school all the way up till till now uh, just turning thirty, you know, it's been interesting to watch how threat intelligence in particular has evolved um, from the early days of you know what I would call almost like the Justice League of individual researchers working together to to stop bad attacks from happening. That was that was threat intelligence. All the way to, to today, which is the commodity itself of, of selling you know, blacklists or um, trying to pass off raw data as intelligence or things along those lines, you know looking at the market um, that's one of the functions that I have now as, as being VP of product at risk IQ is I have to figure out do our products align to what's, you know, what the market can bear and, and what does the market look like from my perspective it's um, it's really fractured. Uh, it's it's hard to navigate, you know. Especially as someone who's a practitioner who, who doesn't want to build vaporware or doesn't want to build things that people don't want to use. I, I'm seeing an immense amount of vendors in the space. For anyone who attended RSA, they you know it's it's completely overwhelming, to the point that in the, within the first day, there's vendors that are offering relaxation booths and like massages, just to kind of get away from the the craziness of the show, and so. Threat intelligence, to me, is is lost a bit of its meaning, um, and I, and I I think most people can agree with that. And where we sit as a market today is, it's highly inflated. Um, that there's been a lot of propping up of companies through venture capitalists, uh, and I think you'll see a lot of those fizzle out, go away, or be acquired by larger businesses. And then the flip side of that is the consumer. Um, you know, speaking with customers on a regular basis, it's it's funny because. I'm hearing a lot of the same things that I previously had heard in former lives of bringing back principle of least privilege and uh, you know understanding where your assets are and what critical functions they play within your organization. It's kind of the throwback security because I think people are finally recognizing that there is no silver bullet um, and it, it's going to take some elbow grease to, to actually maintain a good security posture.
0: One of the things I'm hearing from defenders is like, dude, I'm so focused on just getting the basics right. The things you just talked about, asset management, asset discovery, knowing what's sitting in a network and what's not patched. Just something as simple as patching is just a a big nightmare. How do you sell threat intel to an organization when even the basics aren't uh, in line is is the consumer of threat intel uh, segmented into just a different space where the company is mature enough to handle it? Uh, or do you think every organization should be dabbling with uh, you know, threat intel based on their threat model?
1: I think it really depends on you know, budget, team size, your, your appetite for security. It's a tough question. It's a loaded question um, in the sense that there is no real easy answer. What I've observed personally is that I've talked with customers who have absolutely no logging and they're like, what threat intelligence feed should I buy? They're, they're thinking about threat intelligence as a feed. They're not thinking about like finished intelligence or larger uh, threat actor profiles, et cetera. And, and at that point, I tell those folks, if you have the budget to buy a feed, that's gonna help offset while you're, you're turning your own logging on, but that feed is largely useless if you have no means to run this against your internal traffic or your internal network. Uh, So those are like the small companies that are are beginning to dabble in security. Um, You know, maybe it's right for them to buy something. But more importantly, I typically tell them, like, you need to get the basics first, figure out your own logging, start to understand your assets, uh, understand your attack surface and what your exposure looks like. Medium sized companies that may have some dedicated function for doing research or threat hunting or threat intelligence. uh, I think it's helpful to have an external feed simply because your own internal data is gonna have a bias. It's not going to be completely representative of the attackers that might be coming after you. And so evaluating different feeds from different vendors or different solutions could be beneficial for them. But again, like it's assuming that they've, they've got the, the foundational level components done uh, and that they're able to take action on the alerts that are being surfaced by this intelligence, be it a feed or a finished report or an actor profile. And then finally, I've, I've been to bigger organizations where they have full SOCs, they have uh, threat hunting teams that are proactive, they have security response teams, um, they have all of the functions largely taken care of. And at that point, I start to encourage folks like that to begin producing their own threat intelligence. And so they've, they have all the data, they have an external perspective, they have functions within the organization that can help handle a breach or a response. And it's at that point that no one will be able to provide better threat intelligence than yourself. You know where your your crown jewels are, where your assets are that are most important. You know, in theory, who might be attacking you and the reasons why they might be doing so. And you're in the best possible position to instrument your internal systems and processes to surface that data.
0: So right, it really so it's a, it's is. right, but that's a, a combination of producing your own and matching it against the external things. What is perfect threat intelligence? Because a lot of folks talk about you know context for the data, understanding the TTPs, not just relying on a company giving you Yara rules or IOC to plug into your whatever your scanner is. Uh, is there a perfect threat intel? Not necessarily platform, but offering, and what should that look like?
1: You know, I don't believe there is. And and the reason why I'll say that is, uh, you know, I've been traveling across like parts of the United States, actually around the globe, giving these uh, threat hunting workshops where what we're doing is we're educating people about the data sets and the methodologies that we use to go and hunt actors uh, and their infrastructure. And, you know, naturally it uses the passive total platform, but a lot of what we impart to these classes is that you don't have to use us. I mean, like, it. we're just a vehicle for the data. There's data all over the place. Um, if you want to go and build your own or, or integrate with someone else, that's certainly an opportunity. But one of the sections that I have inside of that, that workshop is this concept of, like, data has a bias. That, you know, where it's being collected from, there's no 100% perfect solution. You're never going to get perfect collection. You're never going to get, you know,
0: uh, the right visibility, if you're buying yeah. from one vendor versus another vendor, they won't, They all have their own kind of this denied area intelligence where they're focused on, they're their, their gathering from a certain space and they'll miss what another vendor is is, is seeing. So even that is an issue.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I, we do routine internet scans where we go across all of IPv4, pulling banner grabs and like doing all this, this you know, stuff where we're consuming a massive amount of data and you know one of the things I like to point out is if we did that consistently at the same time period every every time, you know a, a service like uh, gray noise might be able to detect the presence that we're actually doing the mass scanning, um, and an actor could use that information to then shut off their services while we're scanning so I mean that's a good example of a bias like I mean it's a pattern that we're we're engaging in um, and if someone's consuming our data, be it a good person, they're going to see like at the point of time in which we scanned it. If it changed the next day and we didn't scan it, we're not gonna have that data. And on the flip side, if I'm a malicious actor and I'm looking for patterns of people scanning me, then all I have to do is just evade that. And now it's not that the the event didn't exist or the infrastructure didn't exist, it's merely that I didn't collect it. So to me, there is no perfect threat intelligence. Um, and, and another thing that I say to the analysts that walk through our, our workshop is that the biggest role that you play as an analyst is being a skeptic. Uh, you always want to question what it is that you're looking at. You want to question, is there more? Was there a bias here? Am I projecting a bias? Uh, you know, am I, Do I have enough points of connection to really uh, substantiate the hypothesis that I'm forming? So I, I don't believe there is a, a perfect situation. It's just a matter of being informed into to what level.
0: But well, how does a buyer navigate that? If I'm a CISO in an organization trying to figure out which threat and terror Vendor, I should, you know, listen to and focus on. How does he manage that decision making? Where there's no such thing as a perfect platform.
1: That's 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 a really hard question. Uh, I think it really comes down to evaluating. You know, it's certainly a a buyer's market, right? Uh, You know, there's solutions everywhere, and so if you're not pressured to make a purchase quickly, I think it does help and go a long way to evaluate the different companies that that you're going for. And I think what's also important too, being now on the vendor side, having been in the Defender Point, is that a, a common trait that we see with some, not, not necessarily our customers, but what we see in the market, is if we have buyers coming to us that say like, it needs to do this, 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 and this. And I'm like, well, man, that's a lot of stuff. You're, you're talking dark web, threat intelligence, Uh, nation state nation state i mean like that the the requirements are kind of crazy it's like looking at some of the job requirements for some of these companies that are hiring threat people right now i mean it's it's not it's not sustainable so i I think for a buyer you have to go and evaluate multiple solutions and then you also have to walk in with the expectation that nothing's going to be perfect and to me what's what i love uh my favorite customers to work with are the ones that want to engage with us I'm not trying to sell them a proof of concept and have it built up. Our products are built, but what I want to work with, I want to work with that vendor. If they don't like something that we're doing, or they think that the threat intelligence could be better, or they have some great suggestions and ideas, those are things as a vendor, and I and I don't think I'm speaking strictly for, for Risk IQ, that a lot of vendors want to hear that, as opposed to... Hey, you guys didn't meet all of our perfect needs. We're we're gonna, you know, we're gonna get rid of you and go with this other company because they said they're gonna do that one extra thing until they don't. So navigating, I, I don't really know the the evidence of other than like trying as many things as you can and really asking hard questions. You know, if if it's vaporware or, or it's not necessarily fully built out, asking great questions about the platform, how they're doing collection and how it's sustainable. Um, how you're supposed to use it as a customer, how you would best use it. You know, if people can't answer those questions, then I, I think it starts to poke holes in their solutions. So being uh,
0: critical. Yeah, you're uh, 100% right. Good. I, I would be punched in the face if I have you on the podcast and don't ask you about like nation-state capabilities, which you're uh, well-qualified to talk about. Uh, do you mind if we go through like a list of known adversaries and you can give me a sense of well, you know how quote-unquote sophisticated they are or you know even help people understand that a lot of these nation-state type targeted apt attacks are not necessarily sophisticated at all and they, they rely on just common security mistakes being made whether it's configuration whether it's something unpatched and so on um, so i'll start by throwing out a couple of things to you and maybe you can just kind of riff a little bit if you don't mind uh-huh. Yeah, sure.
1: I, I'll caveat it with this. I've uh, I've largely not, like, being in the role I am today, uh, I dabble, you know, with the, in the espionage aspects, but things have changed since I've looked at it. So I'll give you my perspective, which probably, you know, really, uh, let's say 2015 was when I, I sort of disconnected from that world to some extent. Uh, yeah, so but you're not paying as...
0: attention. You're paying yeah, attention. Yeah, no, I, I tried. to. On. North Korea, capabilities. Uh, there's a sense that... You know, this is a third-world country, failed state. Yet we see a lot of uh, noise, public noise around uh, North Korean intrusions. Where are the North Koreans, as it relates to their capabilities and and uh, and danger to Western networks?
1: Um, I put them very high up, uh, probably at the at thinking about it probably in the top three at this point um why you know, well because they've demonstrated they've actually taken note i believe of what russia did um some of russia's operations and they you know they they went without you know much um they didn't give them much trouble and so i think with the, the initial sony attack you had that happen i think for a lot of people it was tough for them to understand that you know, someone might engage, like a, a nation state might engage in that manner to literally try to wipe out a company. And, and I don't believe, I, I believe that people were paying attention, but they, they didn't really understand the ramifications of that. And what we saw afterwards was, I believe sanctions were applied, but to, to obviously like no no real, um, you know, it didn't stop them from doing what they were doing. And there was a number of uh, reports that kind of followed on even up until present day with uh, WannaCry and, Cry and. And whatnot, where it's clear to me that it's a country that has nothing to lose. And, you know, I talked to some um, nuclear think tank people in D.C. last time I was there who specialized in North Korea. And they're like, oh, it's all bravado. That's just kind of how they they operate. Yeah, kind that's like, the
0: general mindset.
1: Yeah. But what's interesting in cybersecurity is that you don't have to formally come out and say that you've done it. And what I think the North Koreans have have been particularly clever with is when it comes to nuclear threats, they're very open to bragging about their capabilities and to to try and instill fear and put pressure, uh, you know, on other on other countries to work with them um, or reduce sanctions. What's interesting in cybersecurity is they take almost the and so with with nuclear they don't do anything. You know, they they do missile tests, but they've not actually gone and initiated a war which makes a lot of sense i I, you know would be a bad idea but in cyberspace they've taken the opposite approach where they're not bragging about capabilities they're largely silently flying under the radar where all signs point to north korea but they'll never acknowledge it and unlike you know and and in my opinion like they've crossed that line if you will um of actually going in and tuck and conducting massive attacks that have like very very Large ramifications, uh, or destroy these networks, um, or potentially put businesses uh, in jeopardy. And so it's it's interesting watching them because they're largely running unchecked. They're they're consistently moving the ball forward in terms of what can we get away with without someone calling it a true cyber war or or deciding and you, to go and you think that's a action.
0: You think that's a deliberate policy? Because it, if you're right, it's actually working. There's so much doubt and confusion over attribution as it relates to North Korea. Even the Sony hack, there was like half of the country wasn't sure that this was uh, actually linked to North Koreans. Uh, uh, and some of the other ones you mentioned, WannaCry and some of the financial things, they've kind of sown this level of doubt. Uh, on the attribution side, do you think that's deliberate?
1: Uh, I don't know if they've sown the doubt well, the doubt as much as they've just merely never played into the attribution game at all. Um, and that's a, I I think that's just a byproduct of how their state function works is that they're largely not truly connected to the rest of the world, that that there is not going to be, you know if, if the information's coming out, it's being it's coming out in a very controlled manner. And so I, I think their position has largely just been, say nothing. Um, why would they? I mean, it's a money maker for them, uh, and it's also an opportunity to, you know, demonstrate their prowess on on the cyber part, uh, while also kind of increasing their rhetoric on the uh, nuclear side.
0: So you put them right up there as a uh, as a top tier adversary.
1: Yeah, I would. But also, I, I would I would say here that. The North Koreans coming after individual corporations is probably not as big of a threat as you know the Chinese were you know over the course of like the 2009 to 2015 period, where you could run the risk of being put out of business because you had technology that they wanted. North Korea to me strikes me as um, they're they're leveraging cyber to not only obtain money for the country. But they're also using it as a, a large way to drive, I think, foreign policy and how people work with them.
0: Is it safe to trust the attribution from the U.S. government as it relates to actors? When Obama gets up there and says, "Definitely, it was the North Koreans that went after Sony," is that something we should instinctively trust? Or, you know, how do we, how do we, as a uh, absorber of news, handle all this noise around attribution? Mm. You well, know, you understand I mean, what I'm, understand what yeah, I'm no, saying? It's like no, how... Because attribution is a mess and we can have a whole conversation around how easy it is to get it wrong and how hard it is to get it right. But yet at the same time, we're being asked to uh, you know, trust our representatives that when they say this, it's accurate.
1: Well, I'd say for the longest time when I was in this space that uh, attribution was largely done through commercial companies. You know, uh, Mandia being one of the, the first major... Uh, reports that dropped the APT1 report where they formally called out the Chinese government and even called out individuals. So I I, I think what's particularly interesting, um, like the times have changed there where attribution is now uh, more being shared through a government level, uh, which I found to be interesting. It's not that we're relying on commercial companies that have access to this data. My personal opinion where I sit with it, um, I trust the United States and their, their... when they put something out at that level, because it's not merely just saying that North Korea did something. It's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of parts that are moving, a lot of foreign policy that's being driven off of what it is that the United States takes a position on. And so, to me, when they're calling out something, or they're working with, let's say, the United Kingdom, or Australia, or other countries that, that are considered friendlies, and they collectively come to a decision that all of them believe that North Korea did something, you know, as practitioners who maybe have access to this data, you know, we might be able to find some of these connections, we might be fortunate in that regard, um, but from my, my view, I have to believe that if the United States or, or any one of the, the Five Eyes, if you will, or even these other larger nations are coming out and doing attributions, it's not simply off of, you know, an IP address. There's some human element that is involved here as well, um, where it's been corroborated with a, a source. Um, they've had somebody on the ground. They have collection um, in areas that we're not privy to and probably never will be privy to. Uh, whatever sources and methods are available to them are not gonna be available to the public. And so I think it's important to understand that you know, even if you don't want to believe them, um, that you should not believe them for the right reasons. And just because you don't have access to the same data is not a good enough reason in my opinion for you to not believe a nation-state calling a you know or, or a collective of nation-states coming together um you know, to like identify that, a particular adversary yeah.
0: yeah why is attribution important there's a school of thought among defenders like i don't i don't care who it is just you know give me the data and tell me how i can go f- uh, uh neutralize it within my network like, do you have an opinion on why people should actually pay attention to attribution
1: yeah, I, my personal perspective attribution is loosely valuable on the on the commercial side of the house. Um, you know, if I'm defending my network and you know China is going to come after me, then obviously I do want to be paying attention to their TTPs and how they operate uh, and and how they might go about attacking my business. And in that regard, attribution is good. But if you if you fall under that, it, it's a slippery slope because in order to figure out with China would be um, you know somebody who might come after you you need to start understanding all of the countries so one of the things that I personally enjoyed about the espionage world is that it was the, this beautiful combination of political science, foreign policy history technical uh, details uh, and then just um, you know security in general you know, and on you top a- of that it's,
0: it's just a sexy world it's, it, it marries all this espionage type uh, things that's really interesting
1: yeah people people love to put a face to the to the activity that's occurring against them um, you know it, it, in order to evaluate who might be coming after you, you have to ha- take a position of understanding what's out there uh and, and seeing like how and, and and kind of keeping a level of like oversight on top of all of that uh because you know I can think of cases where uh, Iran being a good example that years ago they weren't particularly sophisticated and like they've, they've increasingly upped to some of the antics uh, on, on their operations and they've gotten better. Um, and you know, it's just a byproduct of like they have to in order to be successful or if they want to kind of, you know, exert their own dominance, but attribution stuff, I, I don't, you know, I think it's important to understand who is conducting operations. Um, especially now in, in this day and age with a lot of false flags being introduced more often. But at the same time, I don't think it should be the barrier for you going in and taking a proactive approach to your organization's security posture.
0: Uh, we talked about North Korea. We, we, we kind of dwelled on that. You mentioned China, the activity coming out of China actually led to a Obama-Xi summit that supposedly, you know, would, uh, tone down some of the economic espionage. We we can't watch TV today without seeing uh, capabilities of the Russians. Uh, there's been documented cases of, you know, uh, the West being uh, particularly active. What Are there other countries that may not be making headlines today that you worry about? Any other, uh, like a, a hot spot coming out of a specific region that is not necessarily making news that that you think people should pay attention to that that make you nervous that these guys, these some of these smaller, unlikely places are certainly coming up with these capabilities? Outside yeah. of the big ones, obviously.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, actually, that, that's a great question because I do have one that's that's in my mind. I was going to wait to see if you, you asked for it, but um, this is a nice way to short circuit it. Russia, obviously, is, you know, we could dwell on that for a while and I won't, but I do want to point out that, that as of right now, that is the, the biggest worry that I have, specifically around some of the work that like Citizen Lab has uncovered in the Tainted Leaks project. Uh, so if anybody hasn't, if you, if that's unfamiliar to you, I would encourage you to check that out. That to me is where my true fear honestly lies. Going towards uh, a smaller place or, or maybe wait, a wait, lesser Wait, day. wait, wait,
0: you, you glossed over that. What were the Tainted Leaks?
1: So the, the Tainted Leaks, the, you know, the important takeaways there was effectively when the Russians were setting up DC leaks and um, some of these other uh, ways of, of putting about disinformation, one of the, the clever things that they did was they would preemptively go and hack into nonprofits or, you know, what actually was the big focus of the Tainted Leaks report. I think it was, uh, I don't remember the specific report content uh, for the nonprofit that, that these guys had compromised. But effectively, what they did was they compromised the organization they took a bunch of papers that were going to be published and they adjusted them ever so slightly uh, to make it appear that people who were critics against the, the Kremlin or outspoken against the Kremlin, um, they made it appear as if they had backing from like Western uh, countries to, to basically solely their reputation. And what they did was they doctored these papers, and we're talking strategic commas or, in, or, or omissions of certain words to instill doubt about who this representative was, that they were, that you know, they've always marked themselves as a non-partial. They don't take funding from people. They're outspoken against the Kremlin simply because that's the way they feel. Um, and they were trying to taint these these uh, researchers or or people like their entire careers by introducing this doubt. And what they did was they doctored the papers and then released them and then amplified the the content. And what was scary about that was unless you had someone who had a vested interest in you know, their paper being stolen or the content within that report, if you didn't do a differential, you wouldn't have observed necessarily that the changes were made. Uh, because so the, cause
0: the mani- manipulations were very, very subtle, but, but very strategic to, to, yes. to make specific points.
1: Yes. And, and to me, the scary part there is in a 24 in a hour news cycle that we live in today, it's really tough to like dedicate the time to go and diffing every single one of the documents I'm gonna be staring at, or more importantly, you know, if my friend would have downloaded the paper from the wrong area and then forwarded that over to me, I would have been under the impression that this was the authoritative source, that the person who actually wrote the paper meant for me to read it with these edits. And to me, that's the larger problem now. Yes, we have fake news, yes, we have bots and other things as well, but there's another angle of this too that, that nation states are good at, and that's throwing people at problems. And that if you're you're I thought what was interesting in that report was the operational tempo in which I believe they stole the data and it was as short as two days, if I recall correctly, that they had doctored it and essentially amplified it back out to the public. That's a quick turnaround time for for a nation state. I mean that's that's people who are demonstrating that they they're pretty active. They're pretty agile. Um, and you know, the public, is it's tough to figure these things out. But Tainted Leaks report, uh, great job by the Citizen Lab. And it, they actually went through, I think, uh, I mentioned the DC leak stuff. Uh, they, had, they had gone back and looked at some of those papers and realized that some of the DC leaks information had been doctored as well. And at the time, I don't think that anyone was really uh, raising that as an issue. There was an issue that like Russia was meddling with elections, that they were, you know, obviously causing problems. But uh, it's clear in retrospect that a lot of the companies involved um, from the tech side weren't aware of how big of an issue this was.
0: Yeah, and data manipulation in that context is scary. Because like you said, there's no way to, to there's no motivation among the consumers to, when the disinformation is sent out to do any sort of diffing. There's no, there's no even thought that that could potentially be there. And if that's being done on a massive scale, it just adds to this fake news world we live in. It's uh, yeah, pretty scary.
1: We we almost need like, I joke around, like we need like a plugin that, that essentially hashes news articles and provides a checksum. So that if somebody decides to inject something into my traffic or they've compromised like a media provider and they're rewriting parts of the news that I'm on the getting, fly. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, that's what we're getting to is, uh, you know, I, I suspect at some point you'll start seeing checksums for everything uh, to in order to, to validate the, uh, the authenticity or, you know, put it on the blockchain, right? Uh,
0: outside of the big guys, just to go back to the original question, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm hearing peripherally talk about, you know, uh, Turkey emerging as an actor, or parts of the Middle East, uh, the Palestinians or the Israelis. Is there anything surprising coming out of, quote unquote, the smaller guys that... Uh, That you're noticing
1: Yeah, so to go back to that example that you were asking for like someone who's not maybe less known to me that example would be Syria so Syria's uh, obviously been going through a civil war for a number of years and You know, I had looked at some of their activity um, Years ago and what was particularly there was nothing novel about it. I mean, they weren't particularly sophisticated Uh, the difference was that they were effective and you know I, I thought it was interesting the the you know it seemed that there was only like a, a few a handful of developers that were supporting the Assad regime and one of the things that they liked to do was they were creating like dot net wrappers around their malware and their delivery and that was largely bypassing most of the av uh at the time and making it uh, you know making it so that they could slip through these antiviruses but to me, what was interesting is like if, if you were just a security researcher looking at Syria, you would say, not particularly advanced, the infrastructure is easy to find, uh, it appears that we can even find developer names and, and potential contact information buried within the malware. These guys are like not sophisticated at all. And I, I think that would be the wrong read, because it's not factoring in the foreign policy, the context of which these operations are being conducted, and the ultimate success.
0: Do we know so if do we know if Syria is a nation state uh, sponsored and supported, or these are just in, patriots defending their country, uh, from or if it's I've actually read, government backed?
1: I, I do believe they have uh, that they are government backed. I forgot the particular unit uh, name, but there is a, a sigint unit uh, dedicated. So uh, I have to imagine it is under the direct uh, oversight of the government in this case and. And uh, even if it wasn't directly sanctioned by a particular department within the government, given the current political landscape and the fact that the war is going on, um, I would be shocked if the government was not tapping people or, or bringing them under their wing uh to essentially have those cyber capabilities uh, at their disposal.
0: If the perception is that they're not sophisticated and they're just doing rudimentary type attacks, why are they? If in your mind, why are they effective and efficient? Well, is it because the perception is wrong?
1: It, it's because it's the context. So you take into fact that you know, somebody like the the guerrillas, for instance, and in their troop movements as they're they're going around and they're setting up their command posts wherever they're they're trying to protect or overtake a part of the city, uh, you know, or whatever target they have, they may not even be running antivirus. So, I mean, like, you know, that's maybe not even that's a, that's that probably is less of a concern for them. They're concerned with A, staying alive and B, holding uh, some sort of strategic object, objective or, you know, owning a particular point or, or maintaining control. So to me, the, the interesting thing about the sophistication from Syria was that, you have this this area of the world that's in turmoil. You have a dictator who is clearly demonstrating an appetite for doing you know insane things to their people, and it's leveraging a cyber capability to actually go and perform kinetic operations. And so, I personally have no direct knowledge of the kinetic work that they've done, but I believe some of the work that uh, FireEye had put out, you know had alluded to the fact that these guerrilla troops were being honey trapped uh, on Skype by, you know, supposed women that wanted to kind of rendezvous with them. And these guys are away from their families, or maybe they don't have families and they're just, you know, they've been fighting for months on end and all they know is this kind of drudgery and this opportunity presents itself where there's a human, someone that actually expresses interest in them and wants to meet up and is happy for what it is that they're doing. They're liberating the country in their mind, uh, when in reality that's just a means to kind of get them to maybe open up a link or install an app to get you know lat long coordinates so that they can then go do an airstrike against them. I mean that's the you're talking about a full coordinated government effort in a wartime uh, that that to me like paints them as like a the sophistication is is high there uh, for them to be able to leverage that intelligence in the feedback loop and then work it into their actual military apparatus. That to me is the sophisticated element that that is troublesome.
0: That's really, really fascinating. You mentioned kinetic, you mentioned war. The the whole term cyber war is a a phrase that's fraught with danger, even using it. But I'll, I'll use it in the context of this question. We are seeing and hearing a lot of uh, reports and news that are critical infrastructures it relates to power lines, gas pipelines, water supply. Mm-hmm. Are, are, uh, at, I want to phrase this properly so as not to get myself into trouble, but at risk, at, at major risk for attacks. A lot of these things are now connected to the internet with ports open and uh, it's been very well documented. Do you worry that uh, nation state with the capabilities to take one of those offline? Uh, we, we've had the ex- experience of uh, what was uh, possible with Stuxnet. Uh, is are we living in, the, in a hype cycle uh, to sell products, or this is a real real issue?
1: Well, I, I'm not I mean, sure I phrased is... the question properly. No, no, rambling. to me it is a real issue it's not hype um you know if you live in the united states and you're seeing what's coming out of cert and dhs uh about probing attacks against water pipelines or the electric grid uh you know as a citizen i'm concerned uh because i'm not certain how they're going about making sure that that we're not that that we're not going to be vulnerable to an attack at the same time um We're sort of in this quasi-period where it's unclear or it seems to me that the responses from these larger nations haven't really been uh, decided on, that we're sort of tactically operating as things come up and there doesn't appear to be a strategic means for how we go about, you know, combating someone like North Korea, for instance, like, you know, they wiped out Sony or they wiped out a portion of Sony Pictures you know, we didn't do much there. We did we did some um, sanctions. Uh, you know, with Russia and the meddling during the elections, like, okay, we've done some more sanctions as well, and we've publicly called them out, and that, that continues to be a narrative, but it does not appear to be stopping. It's like not Turkey. a deterrent. No, it's not. And so to me, I don't think that, you know, and, and we're not the only ones impacted by this as well, right? Like you mentioned Turkey, and I remember hearing that, you know, there was fake news being spread around the turkey elections of course like you know erdogan was probably going to win no matter what i don't know if they even needed the fake news to to make that occur but there's yeah to me there's there's a hype in that it's it's just new that that's the hype portion of it it's not that you shouldn't pay attention to it it's like we need to be thinking about how we actually go and figure out if we are vulnerable and, and how we go about fixing these things and you know having teams of people who come up with the appropriate response based on the level of, of action or intent by a foreign nation. At what point does it actually, uh, you know something that occurs in cyberspace actually lead to uh, a kinetic response from one of these major world powers? Uh, I don't think many people know what that looks like right now and, and if they do, it's not evident in, in the actions that I'm seeing at least. Uh, from my the news that I consume
0: is it safe to assume that every government everywhere in the world is investing somewhat into offensive capabilities and I'm asking the question to help people understand like if your if your threat model uh, assumes an adversary here you you need to uh, you need to assume a certain level of activities coming out to these places so I'm talking about like countries like Brazil and Ecuador, Argentina, anywhere in the world, is it safe to assume that all these governments are, are, are beginning to invest or have already invested significantly into uh, offensive capabilities?
1: I think it's it's either safe to assume that they've done that the investment themselves or they've at least done the due diligence to understand what's out there. Or and they're outsourcing the very, it. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and at the very least, if they haven't, Procured the capabilities either through uh, their their own means internally or outsourced through a vendor. Then I I have to imagine that all of them are at least reading the news and they're seeing how it could work to their advantage. Whether that's you know controlling their people and stopping dissent or that it's giving them a leg up, and uh, you know coming to the table by having a capability that you know people didn't necessarily associate to that country.
0: There's been, kind of, sorry. Go no, go ahead. No, there's been rumblings about this outsourcing and the you know availability of quote unquote mercenary groups to handle this stuff for governments. Uh, just a lot of, you know, uh, in the corridors of conferences you hear it. Is that really a thing that these that there are companies and organizations that exist to handle this outsourcing? Yeah,
1: I would I would have to imagine that there there is that. Um, I know we've seen evidence directly of of people who produce spyware at large scale. Um, you know, the Gamma Group, like the Finfisher. Uh, you know, there's a number of different reporting that that seems to suggest that this has been around for quite some time, and that any government can purchase that. If you're talking about more of the unofficial, unsanctioned, but you know, keep doing your work behind the scenes.
0: Yeah, those guys um, are more, more focused on.
1: You know, if we They exist, right? It, I believe they do. Um, and there's evidence to suggest that uh, if you look at the indictments for some of the Russian individuals, uh, it was believed that the Yahoo compromise um, was taken advantage of by the Kremlin, where they essentially fed, you know, selectors, is what they would call it, uh, to... This crimeware, this guy, uh, these guys were, were kind of running things in a crime way fashion uh, to go run searches across like uh, Yahoo accounts or Mint cookies for them to be able to get into the session of a user.
0: Right. So we know from documentation that this type of activity does exist.
1: Yeah, it wouldn't be. There's precedent that has been proven that it does exist, and you know, I'd, I'd go a step further and would say that you know, I would have to imagine that any government that is conducting their own operations is probably working with some, you know, we call them defense contractors in the United States, but they're commercial extensions of the government, uh, You know, in that they will help do work on behalf of the government. They're not the government. The government's paying an organization to do this. Um, it's not necessarily a mercenary, or if you will, but there's a, there's a, it's a pretty formal process
0: that's crazy uh we're 50 minutes in i could talk to you about this nation state stuff forever because i think you you have the visibility and the experience to handle it so um but i wanted to switch gears i hope the listeners don't mind um you i heard a rumor that you're actually leaving security entirely you're leaving your career behind to become a coffee roaster what uh, the hell is going on
1: now so that's not exactly true um you know, for, for those who know me, uh, you know, like I've, I've I like to start businesses. I think that's a good way to really take a hobby and elevate it a step further. It, it gets people really taking you seriously about whatever craft it is that you're doing. And so I had dabbled in coffee for years, um, and I had just found myself increasingly going more and more towards the expensive route of trying to produce the best possible cup of coffee or the best shot of espresso. And it eventually got me so wait, wait wait wait
0: wait back up you're going a little too fast uh, you you're a coffee snob is that fair to say
1: yeah I would I would say that is fair a, co- a coffee connoisseur is oh. how I would articulate it
0: a coffee connoisseur and you're on this quest to find the perfect roast
1: yeah the the perfect roast or the just pulling the perfect shot you know I think some people refer to it as the God shot. And that's it, everything, you know, there's so many different variables in coffee that, that can impact the flavors that you ultimately get inside of your cup. Uh, and having everything kind of align and to produce that perfect cup is, is what, you know, the baristas essentially strive for. Uh, and it's tough. It's a challenge. Um, oh, wait, and,
0: wait, wait, wait. How do yeah. you... Wait, wait, How... Sorry. Sorry. Um... This fascinates me, so I'm gonna ask a million questions—a million probably stupid questions. So just stay with me. Stay with me. How does a security guy who is focused on building security tools and defending networks have the gumption and the balls to say, you know what, I'm gonna tackle the perfect God coffee roast, whatever you call it? uh, When that's an industry that's been around for hundreds of years and multinationals and people have thrown billions of dollars at, at this, where do you get the gumption to think that? You know, this is, first of all, this is a problem that I need to solve. And uh, walk me through your thinking that, you know what, I can get coffee, right? Or is this just an intellectual exercise for you?
1: It's almost an intellectual exercise. It's the, it's the variables at play that become really interesting to me. Um, coffee, spoiler alert for anyone, is, is largely a marketing business. You know, there's only a subset of farmers and good places to buy green coffee from. And so you're, you're really limited in that, in that regard. Uh, and there's only a certain number of ways to process that coffee that's gonna, gonna impart certain flavors. And then from a roasting perspective, there's a, a range on the roast, but for the most part, coffee is all marketing. So I don't, I don't believe by, by any stretch of the means that I'm gonna produce better coffee than, than anyone else. Uh, to me, what got me into it was the fact that, at least in San Francisco where I'm, I'm presently based, Uh, I saw that a lot of roasters were uh, roasting less, so they were not completely going to like a a burnt stage or a darker roast that a lot of people, I think, are familiar with. And instead, they were staying at the lighter end, which produces a a more acidic cup that has a lot of citrus notes um, and and can really highlight any fruit or... um, Floral characteristics from the coffee cherries themselves. You're starting to
0: sound crazy, but I
1: I, I know, I know. So what I found is that people in San Francisco were trying to be so hipster that they were actually they were producing coffee that largely tasted like garbage because it was underdeveloped. They weren't actually roasting the bean all the way through, or they weren't roasting it in a in a in a way that I thought was that that really made it taste good. And I was paying twenty dollars a bag. (laughs) For coffee, and I was like, "Oh, this is crazy!" And so, I started roasting. Walk me through
0: uh-huh. the walk me through the roast. What 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 constitutes, uh, in your opinion, the perfect roast that brings out all these flavors uh, and there's, nuances?
1: There, there is there is no way to get this done in in. The, we could have an entire conversation on this, so I'll say this.
0: No, but wait, 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 wait let, let me back up and let the listeners know you have a split coffee roaster, and you have split, a Twitter yeah,
1: split key coffee. Split uh, key they... coffee. Yeah. And there's a
0: Twitter account that actually uh, uh, publicizes the characteristics of your particular roast. Am I am I am I describing it properly?
1: It it it's not the characteristics as much as it is the live tweeting. Um, I essentially took my my roaster and I turned it into an Internet of Things. And so what I did there was, as I'm roasting in real time, you can see when. I've dropped the coffee when I've hit first crack, which is the first kind of wait, wait, wait. process. So
0: there's, there's you, you were explaining this to me on Twitter. There are like five steps.
1: Yeah, there's like you know there's a drying process where you know it, you charge the coffee at a certain temperature, it then reaches what's called a turning point, which then equalizes the temperature inside of the roaster, and as it starts to gradually increase, you have a drying phase where the coffee goes from green to brown, and then that brown phase. There's this. Uh, uh, I believe it's an endothermic reaction or exothermic reaction where first crack occurs, where the bean is essentially dried out and it essentially pops. Um, and from there, you have second crack and then you drop drop the coffee.
0: And how are you learning all of this? I understand you're watching YouTube videos and just kind of finagling and figuring it out as you go along.
1: Yeah, uh, for me, it was as I was traveling, I would go find good coffee shops that had specialty coffee. Um, is, is what that's considered as uh, a higher level quality coffee and I would go talk with the baristas and I would interview the roasters um, And I interviewed uh, Distributors and I made a lot of friends along the way and you know I was coming back home from Portugal uh, in Spain Where I met roasters who I knew more about the roasting process than they did and they had spent easy $50,000 on a business and I thought to myself this is unreal like I know more than they do and I, you know, I could do this, and so I, I went and watched a bunch of YouTube videos for Mill City Roasters, shout out to them, uh, and, and I, I bought a roaster, and I set up a business so I could put the expenses under it, and I told myself, I'm gonna learn to roast coffee, and, and I did, and as part of that process, I found that there wasn't a good platform for collecting all the data that I wanted, so then being a product person, I went and wrote that platform, um, and that's, that's what runs Split Key Coffee today, is it, you know, I have my own platform to manage inventory, the quality control, the roasting itself, all of the, the, the characteristics. Um, and then I can, you know, I'm, I'm dabbling into shipping that coffee out and selling it. And now looking at, uh, I'm moving back to the East Coast in Virginia. I'm looking to buy a commercial roaster. And so I'm not looking Oh, to so get this out is a real thing for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm not looking to get out of security, but I do believe it's possible. You know, if friends and family hit me up as they know the level of passion that I have for coffee. And they want to learn, and, and that's one of the things I enjoy, that not only I get in information security and my role as VP of product, is I get to teach people about things that I, I care about, and I can get them just as excited. And so, you know, over the Christmas break, I gave my brother a coffee that I roasted, and I didn't tell him anything about it. And he was like, man, this, this smells like blueberries, and it, and it kind of tastes like blueberries. And it was exciting because it means that I had gotten the roast right, and that I That was what you were aiming for. Yeah, and I I changed his perception of what coffee could be, like I don't think most people associate drinking blueberries with with coffee, and and to me that's that's been an exciting process, and and I just like learning, so I mean it it could be coffee today, I don't know what it'll be you know the next year, but I, I enjoy learning and I like becoming an expert on something, and then you know if I can build a business around it, that's awesome. Um you know and if I can make money even better but you know with coffee it's a it's a side project um, I've explored opening up a shop I've explored the laws for selling online and doing wholesale distribution and you know it's a, it's a matter of staying informed so i I don't plan on leaving the security industry quite yet uh, I like technology too much and you know it's it's a lot of fun producing code and and trying to solve some of these security solutions but it doesn't mean that i can't sell coffee on the side especially to security people
0: you've been thinking a lot about uh, uh running a business building teams building the perfect team getting everything set up if you if you look at your linkedin post your medium post this is something that's on top of mind is there anything you've learned uh from moving over to the product side as vp a product over at uh, risk iq that you can that that was just uh, something easy to port over to starting a new business like uh, Split Key Cuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, like the, the technology has helped out a lot. So I mean, I, I always try to encourage um, any one of my peers who, who tell me they have a side project, and I go, well, how long are you spend on that side project? And they go, well, I, I work on this thing like all the time, like every waking hour that, that I can do it. I love it, it's a passion project of mine, and, and I want to give it away for free. I always tell them to reconsider that because setting up a business through something like LegalZoom, if you want to handle the filing, it's like $300. Um, And that's a small price to pay for having a a legal entity that you can then begin to funnel your work through. Not only does it make you look uh, more established, but it also uh, has tax implications, and it allows you to start getting into the process of running a full business, not just creating a proof of concept. Um, And so for me, running product, I think what I found is that there's a lot of people in our industry who build scripts or build tools and they don't quite realize that they're actually doing the function of like a project product manager role slash CEO that they're only a couple steps away from really being able to potentially sell that service that they have that they would happily give away for free as some sort of like monthly service that people would more than happily pay them for. Uh, so that to me has been the, the biggest eye-opening experience traveling through my trajectory and product. Is that I used to give things away for free all the time. And there's nothing wrong with free. But if you find, like what I found personally was that I would give away things for free and people would adopt them. And then there would be an expectation that I would have to provide the support and upkeep maintenance <laughs> of it as well. <laughs> and, and, and that that's a real drain um, for anybody who's ever done Open source projects for for a long period of time, and and I saw that there was opportunities that my obsessions or passions could be injected into a business, and that people were more than happy to pay me money to do that, as opposed to just give it away for free.
0: Where can people find information on this new business?
1: Uh, on Split Key Coffee, um, you can go to splitkeycoffee.com uh, You can find me at at nine B plus on Twitter. Um, I have a Medium blog that I've been using recently uh, that I think it marks my five years of blogging this year um, that you can go and I, I ramble on different things there. I, I try to highlight all the stuff that I'm doing not as a means to make myself look better, but to, open, to, to provide a window into my world and that if someone has questions about coffee, I want them to be able to see me as a resource that they could potentially reach out to. Or or they need help finding a job, ninja jobs, like, you know, helping run that. Like, I, I promote, but not, in a, not ego-driven. It's really just because I'm passionate about the projects that I work on. So I try to put that information everywhere.
0: Thank you very much, Brandon. I think we're well past the one-hour mark. Yeah. Uh, we could have gone on forever just on the nation-state stuff, but uh maybe we can we'll have to do it again one day
1: yeah i appreciate you having me and you know we'll i'll I'll be sure to catch up with you at the next conference thanks man. all right thank you very much